0: Welcome back to A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, a podcast by ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Crowell, and I'm joined by Steve Pearson, the president of ICER. And today in the fourth episode of our series, we're going to take a look at the prescription drug market from the point of view of a pharmaceutical company and simply ask the question, why make a drug in the first place?
1: Hey, Steve, welcome back. Ready for the next round? You bet. You bet so in our last episode last week we talked about the different players involved from the time a drug is made up until the point my patient picks it up at the pharmacy so we talked about drug makers distributors the important role that pharmacy benefit managers play insurers and in last episode we introduced another one of our themes that drug prices are a spider's web for our patients for prescribers for all of us it's an extremely complicated system so one of the points we discussed was the important role that pharmacy benefit managers play in determining how easy or hard it is for patients to access a drug, depending on where they place the drug on an insurer's formulary. So today we're going to zoom out even further to ask the question, why does a manufacturer make a drug in the first place? And I have to say that it, this may feel like a little bit of an unrelated question when I think about what my patient has to pay at the pharmacy, but I think we'll be able to convince you otherwise. So. We'll discuss some of the opportunities and challenges that manufacturers face and the pressures that they face from investors. Obviously, there's a lot of venture capital money involved, and there's a lot of risk involved in creating and developing and bringing a new drug to market. And in spite of those pressures, drug makers here in the U.S. have been successful in creating some of the the most incredible drugs in the world. But before we talk about the market for prescription drugs, Steve, I'd like to start out just by going over my basic understanding of the market. So if, you know, if right now, if we weren't talking about prescription drugs, if we were talking about, say, watermelons, like when my wife and I go to the farmer's market on Saturday, then I'd tell you that there are watermelon buyers like myself and there's watermelon sellers. And so let's say maybe I'm the only person here in Boston that likes watermelon, then all of the farmers who thought about growing watermelons might decide to grow something else because they, they want as many buyers as possible, obviously. So if we think about that and translate it to prescription drugs, isn't it just as simple that the growers, the the manufacturers in this sense, want to produce a drug that will be high in demand? And, And here in the U.S., we've put some policies in place to provide assurance to the manufacturers in the form of market exclusivity that if they invest the money and the time in developing and bringing a drug to market that they'll be rewarded. Again, my understanding is that we've decided, at least in our society, that it's in our best interest to make sure that we have sellers bringing drugs to market, because if no one invests in drug development, then we have fewer treatments to offer our patients. So with that as background, Steve, my first question here is, what are the, the legal ways that we provide market exclusivity to drug manufacturers?
2: Uh, well, if it were all so simple as watermelons... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That would be nice if we could just go out in the backfield and, and grow our new, uh, our new treatments for cancer. Um, so this is all linked in, in ultimately in many ways back to the whole idea of patents and, uh, whether, and and what role do patents play? Interestingly, patents are in the US Constitution. It was viewed even back then that the government had a role to foster industry by providing patents that would reward innovators because otherwise you know, it would be viewed as too easy to copy whatever an innovator brought to market and that people would therefore not invest and at least take risk in investing. And so if you come to drugs, people I think up and down the chain of uh, political um, ideology and and experience, pretty much everybody would acknowledge that the, the job, if you will, of trying to develop drugs involves risk. Because most drugs, most molecules that start out looking promising don't pan out. And so who's going to invest in that and at what points in the chain of development is, is ultimately going to be an important feature of the ecosystem of innovation. Um, as many folks know that you know, the government does invest in the NIH and in some of the, a lot of the basic science that underpins the ultimate treatments that are developed um, through, through drugs and other approaches. But there's still an important role many peop- most people feel in the idea that uh, private drug companies taking the drug either through the entire development process or halfway through, you know, getting it handed off from the government or some other source, that for them to take that business risk um, requires them to be able to have some kind of exclusivity um, at the end of the day. Now, there's a real trick between the distinction between patents and exclusivity. So let me talk really briefly about that. A patent is, is usually obtained from the federal government really early in the process of development when you've got something, just a brand new molecule. You haven't tested it against anything. It's not like you've shown that it works. You've just done something new and it's distinctly different. And there are thresholds for what you can get a patent on. You can even get a patent on the process by which you develop a new molecule. But then you go through, or usually folks go through, a relatively long process of working Um, a potential treatment through its early testing. It may be in animals or it may go first to humans, but then you have to go kind of stepwise usually through several years of learning about the treatment, making sure that the dosing is right, all these other features of the development pathway. And basically, drug makers will get their patents early on as I mentioned, but then, If the drug makes it to the FDA and gets approved at the FDA, the FDA actually puts on something else, and that's called market exclusivity, which basically says no one else can compete with your molecule, with the same molecule, or an additional whatever it is, and it's usually in the zone of 12 to 13 years when that exclusivity is granted, depending on the type of molecule. Because for some... The government grants longer periods of exclusivity uh, for more complicated biologic uh, medications and for others it's a little bit less. But so now you've got patents and usually exclusivity gets layered on top of that and it can be one or the other that is actually the more pivotal in deciding when um, or if a drug company will ever face real competition in the market. So they do go after just like the watermelon grower they want to they want to develop something that's going to be useful. Obviously, they're motivated the same way that doctors are largely. They want to create drugs that will make a difference in in improving human health. They want to go after big problems. They want to do good for society for individual patients, and they're business people. So they want to make money. And sometimes those two are aligned really well, and sometimes they're not. But basically, they're trying to do both in a setting of competition and risk. But this idea of patents and market exclusivity. Uh, which we'll talk about, can both be obviously a good thing to incentivize investment and risk-taking, and sometimes it can get twisted and allow pricing and other aspects of competition to get out of line.
1: So I would imagine if I was the CEO of a, of a drug company and we've spent years and years and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, on uh, researching and developing drugs that, that this... Um, protection via the patent and the exclusivity given by the FDA, that those would be extremely valuable to me in terms of um, generating uh, profit. So I don't want to sound skeptical here, but I'm sure none of them would ever try to to stretch the limits of either the patent or the exclusivity window,
2: would they? They wouldn't try and do something like that, right? Oh, (laughs) um, the irony dripping from that question is hard to avoid. So, um, but let me take it outside the drug area for a second, because this is nothing uh, special about uh, drug makers. Um, And there's a well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley who basically said, we invest in companies that can quickly get a monopoly and fight as hard as possible to keep it. Basically the goal of every company in many people's view in a competitive landscape should be to get a monopoly, keep it, basically, Eliminate your competition, kill them one way or the other. I mean, you can get as as visceral as you want to. So that's the quote unquote free market. You honestly don't want to compete. (laughs) So when that comes into the drug area, obviously this creates problems and it creates incentives for that, for how, how can a drug company with a patent, with exclusivity, use those to restrict competition? Because that's what any company quote unquote would want to do. Now you can argue again with that premise, Uh, shareholders and boards of these companies might think otherwise, and is there a longer term social, uh, not just benefit, but strategic benefit to companies not to do this? Everybody would hope so. But at the end of the day, what we have seen historically is that many companies have tried to fight off the day they have to face competition. They do this in, in several different ways. One of the, one that we're quite familiar with is that you've got a brand drug because that's what it is when it gets launched. And then at the, as your exclusivity is starting to wane, people who can make generic drugs are lining up to make basically copies of that molecule and to sell it at a, usually a lower price. It will be a generic uh, competitor. So if you're the brand company, you might want to strike a deal even and even pay a generic company to stay away from formally competing with your drug. This is called pay to delay. And technically, it is not allowed these days, but there are still cases when it seems to happen. And for years when it wasn't formally forbidden, this was unfortunately relatively common um, when there would be uh, side deals, if you will, between companies and potential competitors that would hold off the formal generic launch. Um, And it could be in the benefit of the generic company if it allowed them to kind of take more time and to coast with a, a steady income being paid to them, not by patients, but by the brand name manufacturer. So the other way, and this is now the more common way when we do see it, is an approach to basically use not the exclusivity, but the patent to kind of hold off competition. And the most common thing that's done here is called evergreening and it just means that you've got your patent and it's going to run out but if you tweak your molecule one more time and change you know the uh, the isomer going all the way back to our biochemistry days if you change the isomer just a tiny bit or you add on a little bit of kind of packing around the, the kind of active part of the molecule if you can do anything like that or just tweak even the method by which you make it you can reapply for a new patent And so you just kind of leapfrog is another way to call it. You evergreen, your patent doesn't ever die. It kind of has a new life. And then you have another little tweak to it. And so this kind of um, evergreening can also kind of just extend the lifetime. And we're seeing this more honestly with the kind of complicated biologic mechanisms, sorry, medications, because there are more complicated ways that are required to make those drugs that open up the opportunity to kind of change and to evergreen the patent more easily than some of the more traditional, what are called small molecule drugs. But basically, this is part of what the system has been, uh, or many policymakers have been pushing back against, because if we really do believe that competition naturally should follow some relatively limited period of exclusivity, we have to make that work. Um, And people will even turn back to the constitution Again, And the word limited um, is in there in terms of the uh, patent life. So we have to have a system in which patents don't just keep on going. So what about other ways that drug makers would try to increase their power
1: in the marketplace? And the example I have in mind specifically is by buying a small biotech or venture capital companies. So I recently saw in the news that a statistic that two thirds of all new prescription drug approvals in the last five years have come from startup organizations. And they were making that point in the context of a discussion about how drug companies are creating their own venture capital funds to invest in in startup companies. So what effect does that have on the prescription drug market?
2: Um, That one, the answer to that one really does depend on your point of view, because people will find both great benefit and some some risks, I guess, from that. So some people view it as as one of the best um, examples of our vibrant, innovative ecosystem, that we have flourishing small biotechs that get venture capital, take great risks, and many of them go belly up, never get out of the kind of the first stage. The the few that survive that have a viable molecule, they're too small to probably do a great job of doing the bigger uh, clinical trials that are needed to kind of finish um, the evaluation of those young treatments. And they may uh, obviously be also too small to do the kind of distribution and production and marketing of drugs in the bigger kind of health system so why not have this flourishing set of junior grade startups with brilliant people taking lots of risks that are willing to go bankrupt and move on Um, and when they do right then they can get bought up by the bigger companies that have experience and resources to kind of move that drug through quickly to its final stage and get into the hands of patients so that's that's the benefit that's 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 obviously probably a good side from most people's perspectives um it's I can't honestly say how many examples there are of this, but you can certainly see it again, not just in drug making, but in other fields, it's called catch and kill, where if you have, you're a bigger company and you have a lucrative um, brand name drug, and all of a sudden a young biotech, it's not making the same drug, it's not a generic, but it's gonna make something that could compete and eat into your market share. Well, you could imagine that you would have an incentive to buy that young company, and perhaps even go slow in the development of that competing drug until your own exclusivity on your brand drug is running short. And then you're gonna face generic competition, but lo and behold, you have a different and perhaps even better um, new brand drug within your portfolio. So um, how often that happens again is, is, is up for debate and um, it's certainly frowned upon as a, as a general idea. But there is some risk that big companies could catch and kill um, uh, kind of competing drugs um, in the cradle, if you will. So
1: thinking about these incentives, I know that drugs approved for rare diseases receive special reward uh, by the FDA under the Orphan Drug Act as a means to incentivize drug development for diseases that otherwise may not attract much research and development by pharma. And I know that some of these benefits include like an extended window of market exclusivity after they're approved by the FDA or tax breaks or special grants or an accelerated approval pathway to come to market. And I have to say that at face value, these seem like pretty reasonable ways to get a drug maker interested in drugs for rare diseases. But am I naive in thinking that the Orphan Drug Act and the benefits it provides, are are they all upside or are there any
2: downsides to that? Ah, uh, we could do a whole podcast on <laughs> orphan drugs, I tell you. I mean, who, who who couldn't be in favor of an orphan drug? Even the name is one that attracts support. Sure. Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's almost like, because um, I'll go back to the history on this. You have to know the history, I think, to appreciate where we are today. But if we go even further back in history, it's almost like, uh, you know, in the fledgling days of the era of kind of the um, airline industry, governments might have decided we need to create really you know a lot of incentives because there's too many risks involved in making airplanes people are crashing they'll never sort out those, the kind of safety issues so we have to give them all kinds of benefits or we won't have any airlines or any f- planes flying at all and then you turn around you know 30 years later and you've got planes going all over the place Now I know that's not necessarily the case now in the pandemic but um, imagine if you set up a system for special incentives to boost airline, uh, the airline industry in its fledgling days, again, and how would that be working 30 years later? Do you still need it or not? So that's the question that many people want to ask about the orphan um, kind of benefits that you mentioned. Going back in time on that issue, there was a time in biotech, um, especially, when drug costs were at a level in those days, when if you were looking at a rare disease, and we'll talk about what that threshold is, where you had only a few thousand patients. And drugs in those days cost maybe $10,000 a year was kind of a big price for a cancer drug. Um, You just couldn't do the math. You could multiply the thousand patients with this rare disease, this genetic condition, times $10,000, and you just wouldn't get enough money back to make it worth your while. So there was real, real concern that rare diseases were being ignored by drug companies, that there was no viable market So in step Congress, Congress said, we'll give you benefits. We'll give you tax write offs on your research and development for orphan diseases. we'll give you longer periods of exclusivity so you don't have to compete. Um, And we'll give you other kinds of credits for your uh, research and development. And that worked. We started to have a few fledgling kind of drugs come through. And the other thing that happened, and this was both a secular trend and something that orphan diseases led was that the kind of psychological top price for a drug started to grow rapidly. So suddenly 10000 became 50000 And then people were shocked, utterly shocked, when the first drug cost $100,000 a year. There were articles. This was not that long ago. There were articles saying, how can this be? Won't the whole system crash? People won't accept it. There was a famous quote from one of the great CEOs and, and founders, almost, of the biotech industry who was asked, why did you price your drug over $100,000? His famous answer was, because we can. (laughs) And that was driving a thriving market. Now, on top of that, we had our science, our genetic science blooming in that era. And so all of a sudden the science itself was able to do better at finding ways to target treatments to rare conditions where the mechanism of the disease was better understood. You know, for these very common diseases like hypertension we still don't really know kind of the biogenetic kind of factors that you know to address but you take a rare x-linked condition um, you can find that gene you can target it and with cancer you know there are other ways to find specific targets so that led to a boom in the science that said hey we can make more drugs for orphan diseases and we can charge higher prices, and so it's all this kind of virtuous cycle. If you're looking at it from that perspective, so a couple other facts that people should be aware of: uh, orphan. That threshold was completely made up out of thin air, and it's 200,000 Americans. Any th- condition that is less than 200,000 Americans is considered orphan. So many people think of orphans, oh, just a handful, a thousand, maybe 5,000. No, it's up to 200,000 Americans. So, with the skyrocketing of price, let's do some of the math, and let's just pick, let's say 100,000 Americans have a condition, so it's an orphan drug. Let's say that these days, $100,000 a year is, would be kind of cheap. Actually, it would be shockingly cheap in many cases if it's a serious um, uh, kind of condition. So, if you do the math and you have 100,000 Americans taking a drug that costs $100,000 a year, and it's an orphan, right? By all our definitions, that means that that drug company is gonna make $10 billion a year. Now, 1 billion is kind of the traditional threshold for a blockbuster. 10 billion a year is is almost as good as it gets. I mean, only hepatitis C treatments have seen those kinds of flows in recent years. So there aren't that many actually great treatments for 100,000 Americans that cost 100,000 dollars, but we can see that the old argument, which was that we need all these benefits and we need higher prices to be able to make ends meet and get our return on our investment, really doesn't hold water anymore. And so some people do believe that we've created too rich an environment of incentives for orphan diseases, and we're getting actually, you know, kind of more common conditions ignored in terms of the innovative pipeline. Now, some people don't feel that that's true, but The short story in my mind is that there's a lot of fighting now over orphan drug prices because the old argument of why we need super high prices just for a handful of patients doesn't really hold water the way it did 30 years ago
1: so i think you paint a vivid picture of why maybe some of these policies are maybe a little outdated but let me ask you to put on the hat of the ceo of one of these drug makers how do you think they would defend either the orphan drug act or more broadly just the regulatory ecosystem we have in general Specifically, are there any pressures that they're facing that maybe we're not thinking about?
2: Well, you will, I mean, again, um, the picture of whether there are adequate incentives um, will look different from different people's perspectives. And you will still hear from drug manufacturers and from some patient groups, especially those that haven't had a treatment yet, that it is the very high prices and high profits that are being made in orphan drugs that are still required to get companies interested, especially in the smaller conditions. It might only have 1,000 or 10,000 patients. That if you suddenly uh, fixed orphan drug prices overall, you would go back, uh, in a sense, to a world in which you wouldn't have adequate incentives to draw in the venture capital, to draw in uh, different companies trying to address more rare conditions. So you will still hear that. And it's the hard part is that there's no way to do a kind of uh, quantitative, empirical assessment of whether that's the case or not, whether there are enough incentives right now or not. What we can see is an ever northward march on prices. We can see that the number of drugs as a percent of those approved by the FDA each year um, that are orphaned have really skyrocketed. It's over 50% now of drugs, new drugs being approved are orphan drugs. So we clearly seem to have solved one problem in some ways and the question is whether we've found the right balance with the other problem the other problem being affordability you know certainly for patients but also for the overall system because if our science continues to drive us in a very good way giving us opportunities to address orphan uh, conditions the same pricing model used for the way that it was back when Um, might actually kind of uh, be the straw that breaks the camel's back and lead to a more radical change uh, that would be bad for everybody.
1: Last question here as we wrap up, how how do all these different incentives for drug development affect either the drugs that are available to my patients or what they have to pay at the pharmacy?
2: Well, again, it's in the eye of the beholder. It's, It's indisputable that we have a thriving ecosystem. Uh, People will will always say that it's fragile, um, but we have uh, recognized the ecosystem, and I I have to go all the way back again to an earlier mention of the NIH. Some people will say this whole ecosystem of innovation that we love to look at at in the US, um, let's not discount that we put more kind of societal money into basic science research, and we end up handing that off in a variety of ways to companies that, that many people feel is the linchpin, an under-recognized linchpin to our wonderful ecosystem for innovation. And people who, who tend to view that the world that way will feel sometimes that we have overly rich incentives for the risk that companies end up taking at the back end of many of their developments. Um, but it's, it's still clear that um, we have a market and um, that means that companies will, and venture capital will flow towards where they see less risk, higher chance of profit. And so we have to be very uh, kind of aware that any change in the system, any way that we send signals to the ecosystem about what will be valued and what will receive a high price, that's what we'll get. If we're going to tell them that we'll pay you a high price for a me too drug, just because you come out and it's for an orphan condition, that's what we'll get. We'll get me two drugs. If we tell them we're only going to pay you a lot of money if it makes a major new kind of benefit for patients with a condition, um, that's what we'll more likely get. So we're going to return, I think, to that question, which is how do the prices, which also equal incentives, line up with the benefits that we want to get out of our innovative ecosystem?
1: Terrific, Steve. Great conversation, as always. I think next week we will turn to ask the question you know, who ultimately sets a drug's initial price. So we'll, we'll turn there next week. Great.
0: Once again, thank you for listening to a prescription for fair drug prices by ICER. So far we've discussed what a problem drug prices are. We've discussed how they affect not only patients, but really all of us. And now we've covered a lot of the forces at play for pharmacy benefit managers, manufacturers, and how those forces ultimately affect us and our patients. But as I mentioned, the burning question remains, and the question we haven't directly addressed yet is, who ultimately sets a drug's initial price? So we'll cover that in the next episode, and we will see you back next week.